Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Ecclesiastes 12. We are going to be in verses 9 through 14 today. And while you turn there, I want to begin by asking a couple questions. Where does humanity find meaning in life? Another question closely associated with that is what should mankind occupy themselves with during their lifetime? Or how should we live? What should be our focus? Now, these are significant questions, and there's no shortage of answers to them. People, you go back through time, there's a multitude of opinions weighing in on the topic. People trying to instruct others as to what they think is most important, what they think the focus of man should be in his life. That's all based upon where they find meaning for life. For the Greeks, they were influenced by philosophers such as Aristotle, Plato. And these men, they were rationalists, and they, for them, it was reason that told them that the goal for man's life, for human life, is happiness. Happiness is man's well-being. The Epicureans, other philosophers as well, they held to hedonism. Hedonism just comes from the Greek word for pleasure. And so for them, they taught that one is to avoid pain and seek pleasure. And pleasure was defined as the absence of pain. That's where they found meaning. That's what their purpose in life was. That's where they they looked to as the source of purpose for them. But today, in our culture, there's no shortage of answers, attempted answers to that question. There's people all around who think that they have their opinions, they have their view of what is the brass tax for human existence. What is it that man is supposed to be doing with his life? What is most important? And they seek to identify where meaning is found and, and how we should focus, what we should focus our life on. For some people, it's all about accolades. What have you accomplished? What have you attained to, and in so doing, made a name for yourself? What will be your legacy? What will you leave behind? Will you be remembered? You see, for them, all of their efforts, all of their resources, all of their, their time and energy is invested in that, to make a name for themselves, to leave as big a footprint for themselves so that the world knows that they were here. For others, rather than attaining to notoriety, they seek to obtain possessions, right? As the old bumper sticker goes, he who dies with the most toys wins. For them, man is just a collector of material goods. It's, it's all about what you possess, how much you have. How much money do you have? How many houses do you own? How many cars do you have? For them, man is just a collector of material goods. They are valuing in their life and pursuing purpose based on what's around them, materialism. Yet for others, like the Epicureans, showing that there's really nothing new under the sun, they too are still seeking pleasure. Our society is full of people who seek pleasure. They want to gratify their sensual appetites by any means. All kinds of different appetites, all kinds of different desires they have, whether it's food or leisure or experience. All these things they seek to find pleasure in life. Hedonism. Eat, drink, be merry. That's the slogan, that's the motto. Well, in our text today, we are going to be confronted by a man who had all of that. A man who not only pursued every one of those avenues, but was successful in doing so. King Solomon, the preacher, he really did have it all. 
And he says that he used the wisdom that God had given him to pursue everything under the sun. And in the end, he was able to sum up the thrust of what life was all about, what he found, what he learned, how we should live. He could do it all in one statement. Well, in light of the endless proposals of what man should be doing with his life and what is of greatest importance in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 9 through 14, Solomon is going to deliver to us the supreme wisdom that we might live a life with an eternal perspective. And I've titled today's message, The End of the Matter. We're going to see that Solomon, in this passage, he's going to pass along this wisdom. He's going to deliver it to us. He's going to lay the, the wisdom, the supreme wisdom, which comes from above, the heavenly wisdom, which comes from God. He's going to lay it down. He's going to set it out for us, and he's going to set alongside of it another wisdom, uh, uh, another wisdom that comes from below, from the world. It ultimately finds its source in man. And he'll set them alongside of each other, and he'll show, it'll be seen that that wisdom which comes from above is supreme. It is superior. It is greater. And we should be led to receive it, to accept it. And ultimately, that will direct our hearts into fearing God and keeping his commandments. Our passage today is going to be divided into three sections. Verses, first in verses 9 through 11, we are going to see the wisdom from above. Then in verse 12, we're going to see the wisdom from below. Lastly, in verses 13 through 14, we will see the eternal value of wisdom. Let's read our text. In addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, and he pondered, searched out, and arranged many proverbs. The preacher sought to find delightful words and words of truth written uprightly. The words of wise men are like goads, and the masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. But in addition to this, my son, be warned. The making of many books is endless, and much devotion to books is wearying to the flesh. The end of the matter, all that has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments, because this is the end of the matter for all mankind. For God will bring every work to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Well, we begin verses 9 through 11, looking at the wisdom which is from above. And he's ultimately going to show, he's going to deliver it to us. He's gonna, we're going to be able to note and pick up on various features of it. But he begins in verse 9. He says, in addition to being a wise man. Now, we know that Solomon was a wise man, right? He reigned after his father uh, David as king, and at the beginning of his reign, God came to him in 1 Kings chapter 3 and says, what do you want? Tell me what you want. Ask of me, and I will give it to you. And, you know, you get a blank check from God. I mean, my mind just starts racing. What do I get? What can I ask for? What can I have? But here, Solomon had enough insight. Rather than asking for riches, rather than asking for long life and victory over his enemies, he, sat, he asked for wisdom. Rather, he actually asked for a listening heart. He says this to God, You have made me king in my father's place, yet I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in, and I am in the midst of a great people. So give your slave a listening heart to judge your people, to discern between good and evil. Now that's a good request. What a wonderful, insightful request. He wanted to judge and lead the people rightly. 
this pleased the Lord. And the Lord gave him an abundant amount of wisdom. So much so that God said, there has never, there's nobody like you from before you. And there's not going to be anybody like you afterwards. He had such an incredible capacity for wisdom. And he referenced this in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 16. He says, Behold, I've magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me. My heart has seen an abundance of wisdom and knowledge. And so we see that he has this wisdom. Yet in the middle of Ecclesiastes, he asks this question. For who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime, during the few days of his vain life? And wants to know, where do we find the answer to that question? How do we learn what man is to do? And in King Solomon Wisdom, he sought to understand that question. He sought to deal with the questions that we began with today. And ultimately, to understand what is of greatest significance for man, where is meaning to be found, how should man live? He goes on, he describes his pursuits with wisdom to understand this. He says in chapter 1, verse 12, that he gave his heart to explore by wisdom concerning all that had been done under the heaven. He goes in chapter 2, verse 1, he says to his heart, he, he speaks of the pleasure that he pursued. He spoke to his heart saying, come now, I will test you with gladness so that you shall see good things. Verse 3, I explored with my heart how to stimulate my body with wine while my heart was guiding me wisely. Epicurean much, Solomon? He's seeking pleasure here. He's looking after what he can find uh, by stimulating his flesh, finding gladness. But he goes on, he lists his accomplishments as well, his possessions. He says, I made my works great. I built houses, I planted vineyards, I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of trees. I made pools and bought male and female slaves, possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me. I also collected for myself silver and gold treasures of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of the sons of men, many concubines. And we see in these verses, Solomon really did have it all. He really had it all. If, if, if it is true that he who dies with the most toys wins, that's Solomon. No one exceeded him. He surpassed them all. He's the greatest in Jerusalem. And all of this was to get to the answer of the meaning of life, of the meaning of life to understand what is supreme, what is most important for man. Ecclesiastes teaches us how man should live in a fallen world. In our text, as he lays out this supreme wisdom, he begins... He's going to begin by delivering the supreme wisdom which comes from above. And we're going to be able to note four defining features that will showcase his supremacy. As we look at these, this wisdom which comes from above, we're going to see that it provides knowledge, that it has perfect words, it prods you along in the right direction, and it proceeds from God. Well, let's look at that first defining feature of the supreme wisdom that Solomon delivers to us. Going back to chapter 12, verse 9. In addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge and he pondered, searched out, and arranged many proverbs. Solomon, yes, wise man, but he wanted to pass his wisdom along. He wanted to deliver it over to the people. He wanted to teach those who heard him. He did so through arranging many proverbs. He taught, he pondered, he searched, and he lined them out for the people in order to teach them Knowledge, those proverbs, the wise sayings. So essentially, if, if Solomon was going to make an argument, why is my wisdom better? Well, because it gives knowledge, because it teaches knowledge. It helps you understand life and how to navigate it, what is required of you. And he gives knowledge. He says in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 4, he 
he says this fact that his proverbs give to the youth knowledge and discretion. Well, what knowledge is that? Well, it's knowledge of life, reality, truth. We already talked about this. What is required of man? What is expected? Now, knowledge is knowledge of truth, knowledge of spiritual reality. That's not something that is natural to man. It's not something that we know intuitively from the womb. We don't just come out saying, hey, I get it. I know what life is. I know who God is. I understand him. I know what he wants from me. I know how I should live. I understand all of this. Right? That's why we have so many philosophers, so many people saying, I've got the right answer. Listen to me. Buy my book, and I'll teach you how to live life. Come get my DVD set. I don't know if we do DVDs anymore, but come to my seminar. This is, so many people are weighing in. It's because knowledge doesn't come natural to us, the knowledge of eternal reality of truth. We need a guide. We need a teacher. Yeah, sure, man has a, there's a testimony to reality in creation and in man, God reveals that there is a God and his eternal power is on display through, you know, creation. And in man, we can get a testimony of that. But man's heart is darkened and foolish because of sin. We need light. We need a teacher to help us. In a state of darkness, man is susceptible to follow every wind of doctrine. While walking in darkness, we're prone to take every wrong path. We need a lamp to our feet. We need a light to our path. Well, in this wisdom uh, that Solomon is displaying, we see that it helps man understand. It gives man knowledge as to what is important in life. And he goes, <clears throat> he goes on and he expresses how he went about passing that knowledge on. He explains how he diligently applied himself to the process. He pondered, he searched out, and he arranged many proverbs. Uh, yeah, many proverbs. We think about this, he saw the surpassing greatness of this wisdom. And that led him to diligently apply himself to dispersing it, to shedding it abroad. Well, we think about this process and how diligent he seems to appear in his verse. We ask the question, why do our pastors, why do men who teach us the Bible, why do they labor so diligently in it? Why do they spend hours weekly laboring over the text to understand it? and then to present it to you for Bible studies and sermons? Why did I spend my whole day yesterday thinking over everything I would say, thinking over the text of how I would present this, how I would explain it? Well, that's because it has a surpassing value. This wisdom which comes from above, we find it in the pages of Scripture. It gives us the wisdom of God. So we labor over it to present it to you, to present it to the next generation, to pass along this wisdom so that we can know the truth about life. Those who don't recognize this value within it, they don't see the surpassing greatness of this wisdom, well, they cut corners or they don't take it seriously. Maybe they plagiarize the work of others. Maybe why don't I just come up here and tell jokes and entertain you the whole time? Why do I labor so hard over this? Why does Pastor John labor for years and years to teach us and to train us and to give us the wisdom which comes from above? because of its surpassing value. I think he mentioned that when he got out of seminary, he was looking for a church that would allow him just to sit and study. I think he said he spent something like 30 hours a week. That's amazing. 30 hours a week preparing sermons. That is incredible. Week in, week out. But it's a sad thing to see 
There are pastors who do have a low view of Scripture, who don't understand that the wisdom of God is found in the pages of Scripture, and they say, we'll just get rid of the Old Testament. Well, let's just focus on the words in red. That's a sad thing. When you recognize it, you labor over it, you see the value in it, you apply yourself as Solomon did. You see a similar warning Paul told Timothy, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. And so Solomon recognized this. We see it come out in his response. Like he says, I pondered. That's the way to think, consider carefully. Pastor John also mentioned that in his office, his chair has two positions. One is upright for writing. The other is reclined for thinking, for pondering. He considered carefully what would be said. We see this wisdom has, it provides knowledge. We see also Another defining feature that this wisdom from above has perfect words. As Solomon considered and pondered carefully everything he would say, uh, everything that he would pass along as wisdom, uh, we see that he gives great emphasis, great detail to the words that are found in it. It says, preacher sought, verse 10, the preacher sought to find delightful words and words of truth written uprightly. He begins by mentioning that the words of wisdom, the words of the wisdom from above, from God, they're delightful. As he's putting this together to pass along, he wants to use just the right words, the most fitting, the most precise, the best words. The words, this word actually speaks of joy. These are words that rejoice the hearer. Someone who receives these words, you find great delight in them. Psalm 19, the precepts of Yahweh are right, rejoicing the heart. They are right. Notice, note that word. Right. We're going to talk about the Word of God being upright in a minute. But the rightness of the words rejoices the heart. Proverbs 2, For wisdom will enter your heart, and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Proverbs 8, Wisdom is better than pearls, and all desirable things cannot compare with her. And you found this, have you found this to be true? Have you come to church and heard the wisdom which comes from above, taught in the pages of Scripture, and it's rejoiced your heart? you've walked in that wisdom, it brings joy to you. You came discouraged, you left encouraged. You came tore down, but you left built up. And you could say with Job that I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. That's someone who takes great joy in these words. And why should we take joy in them? Well, because he says the preacher sought to find delightful words, words of truth written uprightly. These are words of truth. We rejoice in them. We rejoice in the truth. Now, when you think about the, the word, the idea of true, I think we immediately, in our context, we associate it with facts, accuracy. That is a true statement. But for the Hebrew mind, that word brought up more, to the mind, more in their thoughts. It spoke of reliability, of trustworthiness, of something that is faithful and constant and firm. When it's used in reference to a man, it highlights, it denotes the nature of a man who is said to be faithful to his neighbor, true in his speech, and reliable and constant in his actions. Psalm 31 says that Yahweh, he's a God of truth. This is pointing to the fact, it's highlighting the fact that Yahweh is a God whose word and work you can put your complete confidence in. This is a firm foundation, a constant truth. It is reliable. He goes on, he says, these words of truth are written uprightly. 
Now, several weeks ago, I had the opportunity to give a family a tour of the church grounds. They were visiting from afar for an event that we had going on. And as we were in the library, we're going down the steps into the basement where they lock all the TMS students away. But as he's going down there, (laughs) they let us out every now and then. As he's going down there, the husband is analyzing the steps. And he's just, wow, just amazing. Amazing. These steps are so good. Wow, they're so straight. And I'm just like, okay, steps. I mean, like, some people get excited about interesting things. Like, there's a Bible over here, several hundred years old. I don't know, probably has the blood of some martyr spilled in it, but steps. Okay, stairs. Cool. But I joke, because I totally understand where he's coming from. You see, he was a contractor, and in his years of experience, he constructed many sets of stairs, and he was able to eyeball it and see the craftsmanship, that this is straight. It is smooth. It's level. I used to work in construction myself. I was a, uh, a finished carpenter, and uh, you got to be like Jesus, right? So I, I, finished car- <laughs> I was a finished carpenter, and I installed a lot of doors, all kinds of doors, French doors, pocket doors, fire doors, you name it. And so when people would invite us over to their house, yeah, it probably annoyed my wife, but I would be checking out their doors. Honey, get out of their bedroom. Like, no, <laughs> this closet door is amazing. That's so good. This is fine craftsmanship. Or they should have called me for the bathroom door. It's a little odd. But it's the idea of looking. Is it plumbed up? We can look. Is it level? It's, oh, you know what? There's a default. There's, I mean, there's a fault in it. It's not level, so it's going to scrape. You're going to wipe your paint off, and you're going to have to constantly be repainting that. You could just tell. It's not straight. But here, this is the idea. Solomon is speaking of words of truth written uprightly. They are a firm, constant foundation, and they are precise. They are straight. It's like a foundation that you could build a house on. You could build your life upon these words. This is the best foundation to build a life upon. These words of wisdom, they are perfect. This wisdom from above, you want to build your life upon this. And you will never have to worry. Nobody will ever come and say, oh, that was, that's really good wisdom. So good. It's almost perfect, not perfect. Everything is just right except for this one angle is just slightly off. But it's pretty good. Solomon, you should be proud of yourself. Good job, bud. This is good wisdom, not perfect, but it's pretty good. No, we don't have to fear. There is no fault. There is no defect in these perfect words of wisdom that when we build our house at the end of our life, we're going to look and see we got the leaning tower of Pisa on our hands, right? No, we don't have to worry about that. These words are perfect. You build your life upon them, you are safe. Jesus said in Matthew 7, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain descended, and the rivers came, and the winds blew and fell against that house, yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. And everyone hearing these words of mine and not doing them may be compared to a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. The words of wisdom... That supreme wisdom that comes from above, they are perfect words. You can build your life upon them. But not only that, the words, uh, the wisdom which comes from above, it prods you along. It gives you guidance. It guides you in the right direction. Verse 11, the words of wise men are like goads, and masters of these collections are like well 
driven nails. These mat, the words of the wise masters of collections, referring to the wisdom tradition. He's saying here, it's a metaphor he's drawing out of this. He's highlighting what they are like. The words of the wise, they are like goads and nails. It's an instrument that a, an animal herder would use to prod an animal along on the right path. It was a long stick with a metal point at the end. It would just jab it, move it along. Whether it needed to be moved forward and just need a little more motivation or it's going off track, it's going into danger, it needs to be lined up and brought back into the path. But what this was was a painfully beneficial process. Rather than allowing the animal to go astray, off into potential danger, out of the safety of the shepherd, of the herder that they provided, they would poke them for their own good. This reminds me of taking my daughter for a walk. We take a five-minute walk to the park, but if I'm not prodding her along, it takes 30 minutes. And I'm not using a goat, so don't call CPS. I mean, I don't. It says, come on, sweetheart. She is, has to analyze everything. This idea of like, let's go, sweetie. Keep going. Or, no, that's not a rock. Don't pick that up. Our neighbors don't clean up after the dogs. Don't pick that up, right? <laughs> or don't go into the street, sweetheart. Get back in line. The words of the wise, the words from heaven, this wisdom, it guides us along. Humanity is like a sheep having gone astray. We need to be brought back into the fold. We need to be led. We need to be, to be guided. David said that God led him beside still waters and guided him in the paths of righteousness. The wisdom of God, the wisdom from above, that supreme wisdom keeps us in the way. In 2 Timothy 3.16, Scripture is God-breathed. It's profitable for teaching, for correction and reproof. We notice lastly, we have seen that the wisdom from above, this supreme wisdom, provides knowledge. It has perfect words. It prods you along in the right direction. But it also, this last feature, which is the defining feature, the definitive feature, it proceeds from God. Verse 11, at the end of verse 11, he says, they are given by one shepherd. Now, who is that shepherd? A lot of questions, a lot of guys debate over it. What is this? What is this reference to? Who is this? Is this teachers in general, the wise men who taught the people? Is this Solomon? Is he the one shepherd? Is that Moses? Is he the one shepherd? Well, if you look in your LSB Bible, which I know we all have, right? We have an LSB Bible. You'll see that the word for shepherd is capitalized S. That is an interpretive decision. That is recognizing that this is a reference to God. The Bible contains this theme of God as shepherd throughout its pages. Psalm 80 says that God is a shepherd to Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. Psalm 23, David said, Yahweh is my shepherd. Psalm 95 tells us that the people of God are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. God declared in Ezekiel 34 that Israel, they are his sheep. And in the New Testament, Jesus spoke to his fearful disciples in Luke 12, said, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Little flock. Here is little flock. He is your shepherd. And these words, this wisdom that comes from above, it comes from the one shepherd. It comes from God. And that is why it is supreme. That is the definitive mark of it, the definitive feature, because it comes from one source, and that source is God. We've noted all these other features, but because of this feature, that is why those other ones exist. 
Because it comes from God, that is why it makes sense that it gives knowledge concerning life. Because God created your life. Because it comes from God, it is delightful and rejoices the heart of the people who receive it, of God's people. Because it comes from God, it is true, it is reliable, it is consistent and precise. And because it comes from God, it glides us along the right path. So in delivering this wisdom, Solomon has highlighted its surpassing qualities. We have seen its exceptional value, the beauty of it, the goodness of it. It is amazing. It is supreme. But when we say supreme, we say supreme and compared to what? Well, there is another wisdom. There are other wisdoms. And it is supreme in comparison to all wisdom. Moving on, we move to our next section. In verse 12, we're going to see the wisdom that comes from below. And we're going to note a couple characteristics, features about it, that it is without end and that it is wearisome. But we look at this uh, other wisdom. And Solomon is laying these two wisdoms side by side. And you're just naturally, you are going to see the superiority of his wisdom. And it's going to show you that you don't want this other wisdom. You want his wisdom. And that's ultimately going to lead you to living a life with an eternal perspective, fearing God and keeping his commandments. Look at verse 12. It says this, But in addition to this, my son, be warned. The making of many books is endless, and much devotion to books is wearying to the flesh. As someone who's in seminary, I really appreciate this verse. (laughs) This is a verse that I wish my professors would meditate long and hard upon before they assign the reading assignments for each class. If we can just get the page count to under 10,000 per semester, I'd be happy. Be good. But no, what is he saying here? What is he saying? What is, he, is he decrying the production of books? I, no, that's not it. Is he against authorship and writing and publications? Of course not. He just did that. We recognize the goodness of books, don't we? We recognize the, the value that they have, the purpose that they serve. You think about all the books that have been produced in the world, so many. The great library of Alexandria, constructed under the reign of Ptolemy II, it contained 40, estimates are from 40,000 to 400,000. It's a big range, but quite a bit of books. By way of comparison, our TMS library has about 120 books in it. And here at the school, a lot of guys use a Bible program software called Logos, and Logos sells various packages with a bunch of different books in it. And the most expensive one that I could find was Collector's Edition and has just over 8,000 books for the low, low price of $11,000. But if you are a student and you have your academic discount, you can get it for $7,500. On a side note, if you want to see me succeed in seminary and you want to help me in obtaining it, (laughs) talk to me afterwards. I would love to talk with you. But we love books, right? I mean, books are good. They serve a good purpose. So the fact that someone might make a lot of books is not necessarily bad in and of itself. Pastor John said, the world belongs to those who read. Another author said, leaders are readers. So what is this? I had to get the definitive answer. So where do I go? I asked Pastor Joe. Rabbi, what are these books? (laughs) What are these books? And he says they're mostly books about Hebrew grammar. And I think that you can make a strong case for that. I mean, it's very wearisome to the flesh if you've ever been through a Hebrew grammar book, for sure. But no, this this can't just be merely an anti-book sentiment. Because in verse 9, he says himself... That he arranged many proverbs. He put a lot of collected words out. He put words out there. No, but we consider what is in these books. We, we look over Ecclesiastes. You kind of get an idea. He speaks about the fact that the voice of fools comes through abundant words. 
in vanities. Many vanities are in many words. It's the idea of, it's not so much the fact that lots of books are made, but the content of those books. What are those books saying? We see that these pages, the words of fools, they leak vanity. It's a different source of wisdom outside of the wisdom that has come down from heaven. This is a, another wisdom, the world's attempt at trying to tell man how to live his life, how to uh, conduct himself, what is important, what is needed. We know that during Solomon's time in the biblical era and before and during and after, we know that the, the ancient societies near them had many of their own wise sayings, their own collections of wisdom literature. The Egyptians and the Mesopotamian societies, they had their wisdom tradition. They left a considerable body of works, and that oftentimes it did show similarities to what we find in the Bible. They have you know, discussions on suffering and the problem of evil in the world. They try and answer questions for people and Some of their collections of Proverbs appear alongside some of the earliest known writings in the world, 2000 to 3000 B.C. We know that there is other sources of wisdom. This wisdom, though it may share similarities, it is not the same. It is to be rejected, it is to be warned about, it is not the same. Solomon explains that the wisdom that we see, it is without end and it's wearisome to the adherent. First we see that it's without end. Verse 12, he said... But in addition to this, my son, be warned, the making of books is endless. Now, there is no shortage to the amount of words that come from fools who speak vanity. They try and speak truth. They try and tell of what is right and what is wrong. But they don't know because it's not that wisdom which comes from above. For my birthday last year, my wife took me on a trip to a bookstore. I think I had a fun time. That was amazing. You're probably thinking, wow, you're a really boring guy. A bookstore, you had fun on your birthday. But it was great. It was like a multi-level bookstore. Books all around. It was so, it was great. I loved it. The only problem is that the vast majority of those books are useless. Not useless in a sense of like practical everyday things, but on an eternal, in an eternal perspective, they cannot, very few of them in that store could actually prosper me or benefit me eternally. You see, we would go there. Every time I go to books, I immediately go to the religious section, which is always a small section of the bookstore, anyone you go to. And then when you get there, then you got to weed through all the other stuff because there's so much stuff trying to tell you about God. But very few of those books actually accurately handle the wisdom which is from above. It has been estimated there's approximately 2.2 million books published yearly in the world. Seems like everybody has an opinion. There are so many, you know, you laugh because you know this. You, I just was pumping gas and this dude's trying to tell me what I should invest in. I don't know, cryptocurrency, I don't know. Like, you have an opinion? What is my focus in life? You need to pursue money, you need whatever. We laugh, but everyone has an opinion. You go on social media and they're trying to drop their bombs of truth. Mmm, that's deep. Their wisdom on you, right? <laughs> you turn on the radio, they sing songs to their wisdom. They have their own psalter, right? They're singing about their wisdom. Talk show hosts, radio hosts are trying to instruct their followers. Politicians, they know what's best for society. That's why you got to vote for them, right? Woke professors and teachers are trying to indoctrinate the next generation because they know what's best for the kids. They know what's best for society. Everybody has an opinion. Everybody has their wisdom. We notice this fact that this supply of wisdom seems... It is endless. The making of books is endless. And 
seems to come from an endless number of sources. Contrast that with the singular source that the heavenly wisdom comes from. Whereas everyone has something to say, what does God say? The one source, the one good wisdom comes from one place. Solely from God. And as these other wisdoms, they depart from what that wisdom says. They are to be rejected. And that's why the preacher goes on. He warns his son. He says in verse 12, my son, be warned. Essentially, what he is saying to him is that you don't need anything beyond what I have said. You need to be warned about that. What I have given you is good. The Proverbs open up with that same idea. Proverbs 1, verses 8 through 10. He says, hear, my son, your father's discipline. And do not abandon your mother's instruction, for they are a garland of grace for your head and ornament about your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not be willing. There is a multitude of voices calling out to the righteous from every single angle. There are voices filling up pages, filling up books, filling up libraries, all telling you how you should live your life, what you should do. There's a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is death. You know that. So the son is implored to be aware, to to beware, to be cautious of this worldly wisdom. There are two multiple sources of wisdom. There's two. There's one that's heavenly and everything else is false. James 3 talks about this. He speaks of two wisdoms. One wisdom is from above. It's first pure, peaceable, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruits without doubting, without hypocrisy, while the other is earthly, natural, and demonic. See, the people of God are to learn the truth about life from the wisdom that comes from God. It's found in the pages of Scripture. We don't take our cues from the foolish thinking of this world. So in essence, what Solomon is saying is stick with what I've taught you. Be warned. My wisdom is supreme. My wisdom is perfect. Stick with it. We see a similar warning in the New Testament. The Apostle John said in 2 John, he said, anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Essentially what John is saying is you have the doctrine of Christ. You have the gospel. You have this wisdom from heaven. If anyone goes too far, you're not abiding in it. Stay here. I'm warning you. Be weary. Be cautious. Look out. Know it's there. I recently saw a video. A guy wanted to go viral. Everyone wants to go viral these days, right? He made a video. He wanted to have this massively popular video And in the video, his wife or some lady is filming him. They're at the Grand Canyon. And from her vantage point, all you see is a gate and then the canyon. You don't see anything else. And so to add shock to this video, the man runs and jumps over the gate. But what you can't see is on the other side of the gate, if you step up a little bit, there is a little ledge, a little platform that goes out. And he wanted to shock everyone, thinking, oh, this guy just jumped to his death. What is this? But the only problem was... The video went viral, but for the wrong reasons. This guy, it's not going where you think it is. <laughs> he had too much momentum, too much pep in his step, and he falls backwards, and he rolls. And there's a slope on this little ledge, and he actually rolls, like, luckily, stopping two feet before he goes off the actual edge. Essentially, what Solomon is saying, this warning, that gate, you don't want what's on the other side. What you want is here. This is my warning to you. Stay here. There's safety here. There is life here. There is security here. There is a future here. You don't want what's over there. We see the wisdom of the world is to be rejected while the wisdom which comes from heaven is to be received and ultimately is going to lead you into the fear of God. 
We have looked at this wisdom from below. It's without end, but it's also wearisome. He says in verse 12, the last half of it, he says, much devotion to books is wearying to the flesh. Contrast that with the words which come from above, which are delightful and they bring joy to the adherent. These words do not provide life. They do not rejoice you. They take and they never give in return. The wisdom that comes from man, it cannot teach. It cannot provide truth. It cannot lead you in the right direction because it comes from man. Rather, it has a negative effect upon the hearer. This highlights the inability of it to do what it says that it can accomplish. It can't do that. And there's a world full of broken people. So many people are looking for help, looking for guidance, looking for answers, wanting to know how they are to live, what they are to do, where is meaning found, where is purpose found, what is most important for life. Just think about how much depression, how much anxiety, how much strife, how much turmoil would be alleviated in this world if people would just turn to that wisdom which comes from above. I think about the woman in Mark 5 who had a hemorrhage for 12 years. It said that she spent all her livelihood upon the physicians. And at the end, she wasn't any better. She was only worse. That's what, like this world, the, the wisdom of this world. It's the same way. It doesn't make you better. In the end, you're worse off. But it wasn't until she encountered Jesus, the wise word incarnate, that she found relief, wasn't it? She touched him. She was healed. She found relief. Similar parallel. Look at all this. The fact that he warns his son is on a side note. There's like an implicit truth here. He's warning against this other wisdom. That implies that the wisdom that he previously presented, the wisdom from above, it's sufficient. It is sufficient. You don't need to go, you don't need anything beyond it. We don't need to look to the Bible and to the world. We don't need to look to the Bible and philosophy or the Bible and psychology, the Bible and fill in the blank. We live in L.A., so crystals, I don't know. People are all about crystals out here. If you rub these crystals all over you, it's going to take the crazy away. That's why there's crazy in your life, right? We don't merge syncretism. We don't take the two, the wisdom of God and the wisdom of the world. No, God's wisdom is sufficient. We see Solomon contrast these two kinds of wisdom, one from above, one from below, essentially like he's making an argument almost. He places them side by side, and there's no competition. One is superior to the other. One is greater than the other. You see the two wisdoms. You need to make a choice. Which wisdom will you build your life upon? Which wisdom will you follow? So that leads us to ask the question, okay, I, I get it. Your wisdom is better, Solomon. Your wisdom is supreme. The one that comes from God that you're passing along, you're delivering to us, it's supreme. What does it tell me? How does it instruct me to live? What is it saying? And we go to our third point in chapter 12, verses 13 to 14. We see the eternal value of wisdom. Having delivered this wisdom, we see that it helps you to live with an eternal perspective. Verse 13, he says, The end of the matter, all that has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments. Because this is the end of the matter for all mankind. starts by saying, this is the end of the matter. This is it. The summation of all that I've been telling you, everything I've been pointing to, all my instruction is pointing to this. It's leading to this. It's summarized in this. It's right here. 
Everything has been heard. I gave my heart to understand everything under the sun, and this is what I've come away with. This is what I've walked with. This is the wisdom that God gave me, and I'm instructing you. And what is it saying? It all comes down to this, fear God and keep his commandments. Did you hear that? Fear God and keep his commandments. Say it one more time. Fear God and keep his commandments. Brothers and sisters, we need to remember that truth daily. That needs to be ringing in our ears. It needs to be on replay in our minds. We need to burn it on our eyelids. We need to preach that truth to ourselves daily because every time you wake up and walk out the house, you are bombarded by a world that is saying, this is the way, walk ye in it. Let me show you how to live. Let me tell you what is right. Let me guide you. Let me instruct you. But we need to remember to fear God and keep his commandments because the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom. We want to understand this wisdom. We want to accept this wisdom well, it all starts with the fear of God. And what is it to fear God? What does that mean? It, well, that idea of fear brings up several different elements. There's the idea of dread, of actual terror. And yeah, that, that, that is an, a legitimate, applicable reality for the fear of God. You should fear God. You should be afraid of Him because it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, is it not? Men in the Bible fell down at His feet as though they were dead. The children of Israel were fearful to hear the voice of Yahweh thundering from the mountain. Yeah, the fear of God, it does encompass that idea of dread. It also has the idea of awe and reverence. You revere him. As you understand who he is, you respect, you worship, you praise, you, you revere him for who he is. Earlier in Ecclesiastes, Solomon tied the fear of God to the sovereignty of God. He said in chapter 3, verse 14, I know that everything God does will be forever. There is nothing to add to it, and there is nothing to take from it. God has so worked that men should fear him. You revere him. You stand in awe of him. Fear also speaks of worship. You praise him. You have the right view. It should lead you to praise and to worship. And as we see in this text, it is closely tied to the idea of keeping the commandments. Now, fear, that word fear is interesting. It's used over 400 times in the Bible. In 80% of the time that it's used, God is the object which you are to fear. You are to fear him. And, and interestingly, in many cases, the, the direct object isn't immediately directly named, but the context indicates who is to be feared, what is the object to be feared. But here in this text, Solomon makes it clear he does something in Hebrew. He rearranges the orders of the word in order to emphasize the fact that it is God you fear. You could literally read it as God you are to fear. His commandments you are to keep. There's no question as to who is the focus or what is the focus of this wisdom. It's God and his commandments. It's God and his word. It's God and his will. What does he desire of you? This is a wisdom that found its source in God. And it ultimately leads to God, and the whole time it's focused upon God, and it leads to life. Contrast that with the other wisdom, which finds its source in man. Its end is man, and its focus is man. It leads to death. This wisdom is supreme. He says you are to keep his commandments. You fear him, and you keep his commandments. Now, if you fear God, you do keep his commandments. And if you don't keep his commandments, it shows that you do not fear him. Essentially, these two imperatives are pointing to the same idea. It's a it's two ways of saying the same thing. It's a disposition of the heart. 
The God who you fear is the one to whom belongs all your obedience. You can't say you fear him and break his commandments continually. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, many will come to me on the day of judgment. And they're going to say what? Lord, Lord. Didn't we do this? And didn't we do that? They're claiming that he is Lord. They're claiming that he's their master. They're claiming that they fear him. Jesus said, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, and they will not enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father. How can you call him Lord? How can you say you fear him if you don't keep his commandments? His response was very striking. He said this, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. How can you say, essentially what he's saying is, how do you call me Lord, but you live as though I never gave you any law, as though I never gave you any commands, as though I had no will? You call me Lord, but you don't do what I say. You call me master, but you don't obey me. Fear God and keep his commandments. It's a sad state of affairs for our world today. Many people want relief, but they don't want to fear God. They don't want his commandments. And so they will never find relief. They will never find help. They will never find life. Solomon goes on to say, verse 13, because this is the end of the matter for all mankind. Literally in Hebrew, it's this is man's all. At the beginning of the sermon, I talked about he, he, Solomon pursued everything and he was able to come back and sum it all up into one statement, what life boiled down to, and it's this. This is man's all right here. Fear God and keep his commandments. Now, when we think about Solomon, we think about his story. It's interesting. He's a man who, in the providence of God, was allowed to pursue every vain way. He was allowed to pursue everything under the sun and succeed in doing so. And in the end, he's able to tell us what he came up with, and it was this. Vanity of vanities, right? That's what the book opens with. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Solomon stands as a testimony to you and me. When we are tempted to find purpose, to find significance, to find meaning in anything else outside of God's wisdom, to, to turn to another wisdom, Solomon would say, don't do it. I've been there. It's not worth it. it don't go that path. Fear God and keep his commandments. Solomon opened with that idea of vanity, of vanities. Everything is, in, is vanity. A life that is not lived in accordance with the wisdom that comes from above is a life of vanity. I just imagine that, that word vanity, it's the Hebrew word havel. And interestingly enough, it's connected to the name of the first man in the Bible who was killed. Cain killed havel. So we get a very harsh lesson from the very beginning of the book. Man's life is but a vapor, because that's what the word means. It's, it's a vapor. It's an air. Man's life is but a vapor. But Solomon opens with these words, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And that's a really breathy statement. If you were to read it in Hebrew, it goes, havel, havalim, hakol, havel. And I can just imagine the preacher standing on his soapbox on a cold day, and people coming to him saying, what is life? Solomon, preacher, tell us what life is. Havel Havalim, in the vapors coming off his breath. That's your life. That's a life that's lived outside of the wisdom of God, without the fear of God. What is it? It's a vapor. It's here. It's gone. It's meaningless. It's empty. That's what it is. It's grasping for wind, he says. It's striving after the wind. A life that is not lived according to the wisdom which comes from above is pointless. You may have seen the competition where they put people in a big plastic box. There's a bunch of dollar bills on the floor and a fan blowing it up. And however many dollars you can grab and hold on to, you get to keep those, right? Well, that's that life that we've been talking about. 
lived outside of the will of God, just take all the dollar bills out. Man's in there grasping at air, taking nothing home, taking nothing for himself. You, you're grasping for what doesn't matter. And Solomon says, if you want to grab hold of something, you want substance, fear God, keep his commandments. Here Solomon has laid these two wisdoms side by side for us. And we have noted the supreme quality of the one which comes from above and the, the lack thereof in the other wisdom. And his wisdom is superior. His wisdom is greater, and we accept it. We receive it. And it says to us, fear God and keep his commandments. But that leads us into another question, and that is, why does it matter? If I, I recognize, sure, that wisdom is God's wisdom. It comes from above. Yeah, it points me to fear God and keep his commandments. But why does that even matter? Why don't I just live the way I want to live? Well, he closes in verse 14, saying, God will bring every work to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. And there is a time coming when every single one of us will stand before God and give an account for our life. He speaks of the things hidden in which, whether they be good or evil, that speaks of totality. There is nothing hidden from his gaze. You will give an account for all. 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul said, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that uh, each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done. We know that unbelievers are going to stand before him at the great white throne. Believers will stand before him at the Bema seat. But everyone is going to have to answer for their life. And with such a great reality before us, let us carefully consider where we are drawing wisdom from. And let us receive the supreme wisdom which comes from above so that we might live a life with an eternal perspective. Let us hear Solomon's words today, God's words. Let's receive God's wisdom. I can hear the responses. Well, Daniel, the world, in their wisdom, are telling me that my wisdom is foolishness. My wisdom is folly. Go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to close there. The world does say that what we believe is foolishness. They mock Christianity. They mock our beliefs. They mock the word of God. You think that's reality? You think that is truth? You think that is what man is supposed to do with his life? There's no God. There's no Jesus. Jesus can't save you. Your message is ridiculous. It's foolishness. You need my wisdom. Well, listen to the words of the Apostle Paul. He closes in verse 18, 1 Corinthians 1, 18 says this, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Wherein is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased, pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. You see, the world in their wisdom calls our wisdom foolishness. But that foolishness saves us. That gospel message saves us. And finally, in verse 30, 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, But by his doing you are in Christ who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. To those who are in Christ, he has become your wisdom. He enables you to live a life acceptable to God. 
And he is also your righteousness, your sanctification, and your redemption. And when you stand before him on the day of judgment, for those who are in Christ, you will fare well. You have a hope. Do not feed from any other wisdom. God's wisdom is superior. It is supreme. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the witness, the testimony of your word, the truth found in it, the wisdom it gives us. Thank you so much for not leaving us to fend for ourselves as sheep scattered with no, no help, no, nothing to turn to, nothing to look to, but you came and you sought us, you saved us, you taught us, you rejoiced us, you gave us perfect words, you guide us. We thank you, Lord. Help us to live life with eternity in view. We just commit our days to you, we commit this week to you, use us for your glory. May we fear you and keep your commandments. In Jesus' name, amen.